Chapter 13 of The Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by The Grumpy Old Squid. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter 13 A Vow Accomplished. Just as Upton had seated himself for that fraggle meal of weak tea and dry toast he called his breakfast. Harcourt suddenly entered the room, splashed and road-stained from head to foot, and in his whole demeanor indicating the work of a fatiguing journey. "'Why, I thought to have had my breakfast with you,' cried he impatiently, "'and this is like the diet of a convalescent from fever. Where is the salmon? Where the grouse pie?' Where are the cutlets, and the chocolate, and the poached eggs, and the hot rolls, and the cherry bounce? Say, rather, where are the disordered livers, worn-out stomachs, fevered brains, and impatient tempers, my worthy colonel, said Upton blandly? Talleyrand himself once told me that he always treated great questions starving. And he made a nice mess of the world in consequence, blustered out Harcourt, a fellow with an honest appetite and a sound digestion would never have played false to so many masters. "'It is quite right that men like you should read history in this wise,' said Upton, smiling, as he dipped a crust in his tea and ate it. "'Men like me are inferior creatures, no doubt,' broke in Harcourt angrily. "'But I very much doubt if men like you had come eighteen miles on foot over a mountain this morning after a night passed in an open boat at sea. Aye, in a gale, by Jove, such as I shan't forget in a hurry.' You have hit it perfectly, Harcourt, Sumaki, and if only we could get the world to see that each of us has a speciality, we should all of us do much better. By the vigorous tug he gave the bell, and the tone in which he ordered up something to eat, it was plain to see that he scarcely relished the moral Upton had applied to his speech. With the appearance of the good cheer, however, he speedily threw off his momentary displeasure, and as he ate and drank, his honest, manly face lost every trace of annoyance. Once only did a passing shade of anger cross his countenance. It was when, suddenly looking up, he saw Upton's eyes settled on him, and his whole features expressing a most palpable sensation of wonderment and compassion. I cried he, I know well what's passing in your mind this minute. You are lost in your pitying estimate of such a mere animal as I am. But hang it all, old fellow! Why not be satisfied with the flattering thought that you are of another stamp? a creature of a different order. It does not make one a whit happier, sighed Upton, who never shrunk from accepting the sentiment as his own. I should have thought otherwise, said Harcourt, with a malicious twinkle of the eye, for he fancied that he had at last touched the weak point of his adversary. No, my dear Harcourt, the Crasso Noturo had rather the best of it, since no small share of this world's collisions are actually physical shocks, and that great strong pipkin that encloses your brains will stand much that would smash the poor eggshell that shrouds mine. Whenever you draw a comparison in my favor, I always find at the end I come off worse, said Harcourt bluntly, and Upton laughed one of his rich musical laughs, in which there was indeed nothing mirthful, but something that seemed to say that his nature experienced a sense of enjoyment higher, perhaps, than anything merely comic could suggest. You came off best this time, Harcourt, said he, good-humouredly, and such a thorough air of frankness accompanied the words that Harcourt was disarmed of all distrust at once, and joined in the laugh heartily. But you have not yet told me, Harcourt, said the other, where you have been, 
and why you spent your night on the sea. The story is not a very long one, replied he, and at once gave a full recital of the events which our reader has already had before him in our last chapter, adding, in conclusion, I have left the boy in a cabin at Belmolet. He is in a high fever and raving so loud that you could hear him a hundred yards away. I told them to keep cold water on his head and give him plenty of it to drink, nothing more, till I could fetch our doctor over, for it will be impossible to move the boy from where he is for the present. Glencore has been asking for him already this morning. He did not desire to see him, but he begged of me to go to him and speak with him. And have you told him that he was from home, that he passed the night away from this? No, I merely intimated that I should look after him, waiting for your return to guide myself afterwards. I don't suspect that when we took him from the boat the malady had set in. He appeared rather like one overcome by cold and exhaustion. It was about two hours after. He had taken some food and seemed stronger, when I said to him, Come, Charlie, you'll soon be all right again. I have sent a fellow to look after a pony for you, and you'll be able to ride back, won't you? Ride where? cried he eagerly. Home, of course, said I to Glencore. Home? I have no home, cried he, and the wild scream he uttered the words with, I'll never forget. It was just as if that one thought was the boundary between sense and reason, and the instant he had passed it, all was chaos and confusion, for now his raving began. The most frantic imaginations, always images of sorrow, and with a rapidity of utterance there was no following. Of course, in such cases, the delusions suggest no clue to the cause, but all his fancies were about being driven out of doors an outcast and a beggar, and of his father rising from his sickbed to curse him. Poor boy! Even in this his better nature gleamed forth as he cried, Tell him! And he said the words in a low whisper, Tell him not to anger himself. He is ill, very ill, and should be kept tranquil. Tell him, then, that I am going, going away forever, and I'll hear of me no more. As Harcourt repeated the words, his own voice faltered, and two heavy drops slowly coursed down his bronze cheeks. You see, added he, as if to excuse the emotion, that wasn't like raving, for he spoke this just as he might have done if his very heart was breaking. Poor fellow, said Upton, and the words were uttered with real feeling. Some terrible scene must have occurred between them, resumed Harcourt. Of that I feel quite certain. I suspect you are right, said Upton, bending over his teacup, and our part in consequence is one of considerable delicacy, for until Glencore alludes to what has passed, we, of course, can take no notice of it. The boy is ill. He is in a fever. We know nothing more. I'll leave you to deal with the father. The son shall be my care. I have told Traynor to be ready to start with me after breakfast, and have ordered two stout ponies for the journey. I conclude there will be no objection in detaining the doctor for the night. What think you, Upton? Do you consult the doctor on that head? Meanwhile, I'll pay a visit to Glencore. I'll meet you in the library. And so saying, Upton rose, and gracefully draping the folds of his dressing gown and arranging the waving lock of hair which had escaped beneath his cap, he slowly set out towards the sick man's chamber. Of all the springs of human action, there was not one in which Sir Horace Upton sympathized so little as passion that any man could adopt a line of conduct from which no other profit could result than what might minister to a feeling of hatred, jealousy, or revenge seemed to him utterly contemptible. It was not, indeed, the morality of such a course that he called in question, although he would not have contested that point. It was its meanness, its folly, its insufficiency, 
his experience of great affairs had imbued him with all the importance that was due to temper and moderation he scarcely remembered an instant where a false move had damaged a negotiation that it could not be traced to some passing trait of impatience or some lurking spirit of animosity bidding the hour of its gratification he had long learned to perceive how much more temperament has to do in the management of great events than talent or capacity and his opinion of men was chiefly founded on this quality of their nature it was then with an almost pitying estimate of glencore that he now entered the room where the sick man lay anxious to be alone with him glencore had dismissed all the attendants from his room and sat propped up by pillows eagerly awaiting his approach upton moved through the dimly lighted room like one familiar to the atmosphere of illness and took a seat beside the bed with that noiseless quiet which in him was a kind of instinct it was several minutes before glencore spoke and then in a low faint voice he said are we alone upton yes said the other gently pressing the wasted fingers which lay on the counterpane before him you forgive me upton said he and the words trembled as he uttered them you forgive me upton though i cannot forgive myself my dear friend a passing moment of impatience is not to breach the friendship of a lifetime your calmer judgment would i know not be unjust to me but how am i to repair the wrong i have done you by never alluding to it never thinking of it again glencore it is so unworthy so ignoble in me cried glencore bitterly and a tear fell over his eyelid and rested on his wan and worn cheek let us never think of it my dear glencore life has real troubles enough for either of us not to dwell on those which we may fashion out of our emotions i promise you i have forgotten the whole incident glencore sighed heavily but did not speak at last he said be it so upton and covering his face with his hand lay still and silent well said he after a long pause the die is cast upton i have told him told the boy said upton he nodded in assent it is too late to oppose me now upton the thing is done i didn't think i had the strength for it but revenge is a strong stimulant and i felt as though once more restored to health as i proceeded poor fellow he bore it like a man like a man do i say no but better than men ever bore such crushing tidings he asked me to stop once while his head reeled and said in a minute i shall be myself again and so he was too you should have seen him upton as he rose to leave me so much of dignity was there in his look that my heart misgave me and i told him that still as my son he should never want a friend and a protector he grew deadly pale and caught at the bed for support another moment and i'd not have answered for myself i was already relenting but i thought of her and my resolution came back in all its force still i dared not look on him the sight of that wan cheek those quivering lips and glassy eyes would certainly have unmanned me i turned away when i looked round he was gone as he ceased to speak a clammy perspiration burst forth over his face and forehead and he made a sign to upton to wet his lips it is the last pang she is to cost me upton but it is a sore one said he in a low hoarse whisper my dear glencore this is all little short of madness even as revenge it is failure since the heaviest share of the penalty recoils upon yourself how so cried he impetuously is it thus that an ancient name is to go out for ever is it in this wise that a house noble for centuries is to crumble into ruin 
I will not again urge upon you the cruel wrong you are doing. Over that boy's inheritance you have no more right than over mine. You cannot rob him of the protection of the law. No power could ever give you the disposal of his destiny in this wise. I have done it, and I will maintain it, sir, cried Glencore. And if the question is, as you vaguely hint, to be one of law, no, no, Glencore, do not mistake me. Hear me out, sir, said he passionately. If it is to be one of law, let Sir Horace Upton give his testimony, tell all that he knows, and let us see what it will avail him. You may, it is quite open to you, place us front to front as enemies. You may teach the boy to regard me as one who has robbed him of his birthright, and train him up to become my accuser in a court of justice. But my cause is a strong one. It cannot be shaken, and where you hope to brand me with tyranny, you will but visit bastardy upon him. Think twice, then, before you declare this combat. It is one where all your craft will not sustain you. My dear Glencore, it is not in this spirit that we can speak profitably to each other. If you will not hear my reasons calmly and dispassionately, to what end am I here? You have long known me as one who lays claim to no more rigid morality than consists with the theory of a worldly man's experiences. I affect no high-flown sentiments. I am as plain and practical as may be. And when I tell you that you are wrong in this affair, I mean to say that what you are about to do is not only bad, but impolitic. In your pursuit of a victim, you are immolating yourself. Be it so. I go not alone to the stake. There is another to partake of the torture, cried Glencore wildly, and already his flushed cheek and flashing eyes betrayed the approach of a feverish access. If I am not to have any influence with you then, resumed Upton, I am here to no purpose. If to all that I say, to arguments you cannot answer, you obstinately persist in opposing an insane thirst for revenge, I see not why you should desire my presence. You have resolved to do this great wrong? It is already done, sir, broke in Glencore. Wherein, then, can I be of any service to you? I am coming to that. I had come to it before, had you not interrupted me. I want you to be guardian to the boy. I want you to replace me in all that regards authority over him. You know life well, Upton. You know it not alone in its paths of pleasure and success, but you understand thoroughly the rugged footway over which humble men toil wearily to fortune. None can better estimate a man's chances of success, nor more surely point the road by which he is to attain it. The provision which I destine for him will be an humble one and he will need to rely upon his own efforts. You will not refuse me the service, Upton. I ask it in the name of our old friendship. There is but one objection I could possibly have, and yet that seems to be insurmountable. And what may it be, cried Glencore? Simply, that in acceding to your request, I make myself an accomplice in your plan, and thus aid and abet the very scheme I am repudiating. What avails your repudiation, if it will not turn me from my resolve? That it will not, I'll swear to you as solemnly as ever an oath was taken. I tell you again, the thing is done. For the consequences which are to follow on it, you have no responsibility. These are my concern. I should like a little time to think it over, said Upton, with the air of one struggling with irresolution. Let me have this evening to make up my mind. Tomorrow you shall have my answer. Be it so, then, said Glencore and, turning his face away, waved a cold farewell with his hand. We do not purpose to follow Sir Horace as he retired, nor does our task require that we should pry into the secret recesses of his wily nature. Enough if we say that, in asking for time, 
his purpose was rather to afford another opportunity of reflection to Glencore than to give himself more space for deliberation. He had found, by the experience of his calling, that the delay we often crave for to resolve a doubt has sufficed to change the mind of him who originated the difficulty. I'll give him some hours at least, thought he, to ponder over what I have said. Who knows, but the argument may seem better in memory than in action. Such things have happened before now, and, having finished this reflection, he turned to peruse the pamphlet of a quack doctor who pledged himself to cure all disorders of the circulation by attending to tidal influences, and made the moon herself enter into the materia medica. What Sir Horace believed or did not believe in the wild rhapsodies of the charlatan is known only to himself. Whether his credulity was fed by the hope of obtaining relief, or whether his fancy only was aroused by the speculative images thus suggested, it is impossible to say. It is not altogether improbable that he perused these things as Charles Fox used to read all the trashiest novels of the Minerva Press, and find, in the very distorted and exaggerated pictures, a relief and a relaxation which more correct views of life had failed to impart. Hard-headed men require strange indulgences. End of chapter 13 Recording by The Grumpy Old Squid of Tidewater, Virginia